0: The chapters, there we go. I can talk in a normal voice now, not have to yell at you. Chapters thirty and thirty-one were where they talked about Israel's dependence or Judah's dependence on Egypt, and their horses and their cavalry and their chariots and all of the things that they were doing instead of depending on God. Chapter th- chapter thirty-two was an aside that Isaiah took. And he is talking there about Messiah. This is one of the Messianic prophecies in chapter 32. So that brings us to chapter 33. All right. All of these things that we're talking about, that we've been talking about since chapter 28, all the woes pronounced on Jerusalem and on Israel and Judah are all coming to a head, all coming to a head in chapter 36 Chapter 36 is where we find out why all of these things have been said. So this is going to be prophecy made and prophecy fulfilled in chapter 36. So we're working our way to that. So in chapter 33, we're starting out and talking about those who plunder. And as we talk about those who plunder, we're now dealing specifically with the Assyrians. The Assyrians are just north of... The land of Judah. If you remember the slide that I put up uh, many weeks ago, Israel is up above Judah. Judah smaller on the bottom. Jerusalem is right in the middle, and all of Israel has been, all of Israel has been taken. It's doing the same thing it did to Brother Kemp last week. He's breaking up. Okay, so all so Sennacherib is making his entries into the land. He's taken a bunch of cities. He's already plundered a bunch of cities. He's already taken a bunch of people captive. And he's got his eyes set on Judah. Specifically, he has his eyes set on Jerusalem. He wants Jerusalem. But God has already said in these preceding chapters, the 36. well, what you want ain't going to be what you're going to get because I'm not going to let you have Jerusalem. I'm not going to let you have this land. Woe to you, chapter 33, verse 1. Woe to you who plunder Though you have not been plundered, Assyria is sitting at the top of the heap. They're the big dog. But they're not going to be the big dog for long. Because we'll see in chapters 36, 37, and 38, especially in chapter 37 and 38, Babylonians come to town. And how many of you are following the Lehman learner every day? How many of you are doing the Lehman learner every day? Every one of you who are following the Lehman Learner every day already know what's going to happen. He's already two or three, he's already two or three chapters or weeks ahead of what we're talking about in the Lehman Learner. Or what you're, he's talking about Lehman Learner. He's already two or three weeks ahead of this right now. The Babylonians come to town and they ask Hezekiah, show us your gold. Let us look around. And Hezekiah, sure, let me show you everything we got. What's in your house? was the name of the one from the other day, if you remember that one. What's in your house? And talking about from the standpoint of what's in your house versus what was in Hezekiah's house. Hezekiah just showed him everything they had, so the Babylonians knew all the stuff that they had. And when they took power from the Assyrians, chapter 37, 38, and on into other books of the Bible, Daniel, when they took power, 561, they took everybody. And those who are plundering today, the Assyrians... Though you have not been plundered, and those of you who deal treacherously, though you've not dealt treachery, though they have not dealt treacherously with you, when you cease plundering, what will happen? When Assyria ceases, ceases their plundering, what's going to happen to Assyria? They're going to be plundered. They're going to go into the ha- ash bin of history. When the Babylonians are done with what they're doing, who's going to take who's going to take over? Who's going to take them? Who takes them? Who takes the Babylonians? The Medes, and who takes, and the Medo-Persian are then, are then dispensed with. They become part of the ash heap of history also. All of these great countries, all of these great powers, all of these great armies, they come to nothing. Only God's remnant survives. And so that's what he's talking about here. When you see plundering, you're going to be plundered. When you make an end to dealing treacherously, They're going to deal treacherously with you. What you give, you're going to get. And sometimes you're going to get it back in spades. And so what happens here is is Isaiah is saying, this is going to happen. And this is going to happen in the not-too-distant future. And it all comes to pass just two chapters later. And then he says a prayer. Like Nehemiah, Isaiah is always in a prayerful attitude. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. What does it mean to the Christian, the individual Christian, to pray this prayer that God be their arm every morning? What does that mean to the Christian? I'm sorry? Your faith? If someone's having a hard time walking, go ahead, Chuck. What does the song say? Leaning on the everlasting arm. The arm of man will fail you. God's arm never will. So if we lean on God's arm, we're talking about leaning on everything he said, everything Chuck said, leaning on his grace, leaning on his mercy, leaning on his providence. Strength, not our strength, but the strength that we have because we lean on his arm. Just think about it from a practical standpoint. If you have an, an elderly relative or someone who's older or someone who suffered an injury, sometimes they have to do what? They have to lean, they have to lean on you. And in a figurative sense, they lean on you for coming to help them, maybe to clean the house. Maybe they lean on you to run an errand for them or to do chores for them. But sometimes they physically cannot move or do anything without what? Without leaning on you, leaning on your arm. It's the same thing with God. At the noise of the tumult, the people will flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations will be scattered. All of this is saying, down through the end of this chapter, Isaiah is telling you what's coming. Bad things are coming when the Assyrians are coming. But God is there, and his arm you can lean on assuredly to survive this. God talks about being exalted down in verse 5. And there's a constancy with this in the book of Isaiah. There's a pervading sense in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and with righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of your salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. These things can be applied at the personal level, and we've talked about this over the over the last few weeks. All of these things that he's talking about can be applied to a personal level, to your daily walk with Christ. They can be applied to the church, and they can be applied to the nation. The nation in Isaiah's time and the nation in our time, too. And so we look at what a wise nation or a wise church employs based on these two verses alone. Wisdom and knowledge. The Lord is exalted, verse 5. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. When you come here to worship, is there not a sense within you that you are coming here for some larger purpose than just yourself? You are coming here You are coming in the very presence of God Himself to bring the best that you have. Otherwise, why even be here? Why even come? There must be a pervading sense among all of God's people that God is here. He is exalted, He dwells on high, He's filled Zion with justice. With justice and judgment and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge. There must be a pervading sense that the book that we have from God is strong enough to make us wise. To make us know what is right. To make us know what is wrong. The constancy of God's help, the constancy of God's presence. This nation and other nations before it have depended on armies and navies and soldiers and missiles and guns and weapons of war to keep themselves free. But I would submit to you that no nation is free if they don't have God. And I've actually heard it said by gospel preachers, and I believe it to be true. A Christian on their knees praying is more powerful than any army in the world. Because we serve the God of the universe. We serve a God who does not sleep, who does not grow weak, who does not grow weary. We serve the creator. There is an inward... Rottenness to a nation, to a church, to a person who does not have God and the security and the grace and the love and the mercy that God provides. There's an inward rottenness. One scholar has said, the true source of stability and of strength is in heavenly wisdom. That knowledge is Which God means not only a perception of the truth, but a love of that truth and a delight in that truth and acceptance of it as the one thing that will cleanse your heart and regulate your life. The fear of the Lord, the last portion of that, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Very simple question. Where's your treasure? Where's your wealth? What do you have it tied up in? What constitutes wealth? What constitutes prosperity? All the money in the world stocks, bonds, Bitcoin, all these things men depend on, men worship. But the simple fact is that is a paradise for fools. Because true wealth, true wisdom, true treasure is that treasure that's laid up in heaven. What did Jesus say? Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth corrupts, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where a man's treasure is, there he is also. Wisdom and knowledge. Fear of the Lord, exaltation of our Most High God. The remainder of the chapter really talks about the things that will happen as a consequence of this coming invasion. And we see that in verse 8. We see the, or verse 7, the valiant ones will cry outside. The ambassador's peace will weep bitterly. Your highways will be waste. The traveling man will cease to travel. They've broken the covenant. They've despised the cities. They regard no man. The earth mourns and languishes, all the cities now that he mentions. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness, and Basham and Carmel shake off their f- fruits. But God says in verse th- verse 10, now I will rise, now I will be exalted, and now I will be lifted up. And so with the remainder of this chapter, he talks about the negatives and the positives of those who Abide in his presence. Look at verse 11. You will conceive chaff. You will bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. Who can abide in Isaiah's time as well as in our time? Who can abide in God's presence? Who can abide in God's presence? Well, let's think about it from a negative and positive standpoint. Negatively, who cannot abide in God's, in God's, in God's presence? The unrighteous, those who have not named the name of Christ, those who have not bent their knee to his will, become obedient to him. Those who are insincere, those who are unfaithful. All of these, fearfulness, verse 14, fearfulness will surprise the hypocrite. The insincere children of privilege cannot remain or abide in the presence of God. How about the positive side? Who can abide in the presence of God? The faithful. Those who have genuinely repented of sin, named the name of Christ, attempt to live their daily lives in such a way as to bring glory to God. A living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 15, we see that person, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Now look at these characteristics very closely with me. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. That goes to the tongue. That goes to our conversation. That goes to how we comport ourselves among others. How about he who gains, who he who despises the gain of oppression. What does it mean to despise the gain of oppression? Just to sit quietly by as you see someone oppressed, as you see someone who is oppressed for whatever reason to keep silent is to do no good. So the man who walks uprightly, the man who speaks righteously. The man who despises the gain of oppression. Who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes. He has an upright character. He will not accept a bribe to do something that he knows to be wrong. So upright conduct, that's walking righteously, refusing a bribe. Soundness of speech. Refusing all access to evil, stopping the ears and shutting the eyes from hearing and seeing. And there in verse 15, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. The upright person who is in the presence of God refuses refuses to be a part of this evil. And he has a hearty hatred of injustice. That's the despising the gain of oppression. What's the result Verse 16, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be a fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him and water will be sure. And now verse 17, very interesting verse. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and they will see the land that is very far off. What do you think? Who are we talking about? There are two interpretations. Two interpretations of this. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Anyone? What do you think? What are you talking about? God himself. Talking about there's, there is the messianic portion of this. We're going to see the king. We're going to see the king in his beauty. We beheld him. We saw him. John says we touched him. We were a part of his life. He was a part of our lives. We beheld the king in his beauty. Certainly a messianic prophecy. Certainly messianic for the son of God. That Jesus lived on earth, the king of men, Matthew 21.5. And the land that we will see afar off, heaven. Quite easy to make that jump. But there's a second interpretation for Isaiah in his time, and that was to see King Hezekiah. And if you're following the Lehman learner, you know that King Hezekiah was one of the very few good kings that served God. And so from Isaiah's perspective, we shall see the king in his beauty means we shall see the king Hezekiah. And though we be left captive, although we be taken away, we shall see a land That is very far off when the redeemed, when that remnant, come back home. And so however you choose to see it, if you choose to see it in a messianic view or in a contemporary view, the people of Isaiah's time could depend on King Hezekiah. They could not depend on his son once he was gone. They could not depend on previous kings, although some were good, some did evil. But Hezekiah was the good king and King Hezekiah comes to the fore in the forefront in chapter 36 and 37 where he becomes ill and prays to God that he extends his life. And so we see that land that is far distant. We see that historical kingdom of Hezekiah's and we again see the spiritual kingdom of heaven that is our home because we seek a land that is not of this earth, but we seek another home. And so down through the end of the chapter, there's talk of uh, restoration, there's talk of divine mercy, there's talk of the abiding presence and the great power of God, and that there's a reconciling of all the evils as they come to an end. There is also divine guardianship and soundness and security. And if you see that in verse 22 where he says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Words that could very well apply to the Christian today. He is our king. He is our lawgiver. He will save us. And as a result of that in verses 23 and 24, you conclude the chapter, Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mass. They could not spread their sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. So as these great ships come, they cannot strengthen their mass. They cannot spread their sails. They are not able to stand with their great armies. They are not able to stand with their great navies. They are not able to stand against God. And so this woe to Sennacherib, this woe to um, to the the house of Judah comes to an end to be fulfilled, beginning in chapter thirty six, where we have multiple records. We have multiple we have records of this in Chronicles and in, the, in Second Chronicles and in Second Kings, and all of this will come about uh, in chapter thirty six. So, as we go to chapter thirty four. We find judgment on the nations. And judgment on the nations in this chapter takes its takes its lead from a very despicable group of people, let's just say. And these this group of people are the descendants of Esau, or the Edomites. And the Edomites, well, you tell me, who were the Edomites, you old Testament scholars? Who are the Edomites? We know they were the descendants of Esau, and then the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. So we've got Jacob and Esau, and they had their troubles, one with another. But Esau fathered a tribe of the Edomites. What do we know about the Edomites? Where did did we first see the Edomites? (coughs) Edomites. I can stand up here all day. Numbers 20. Numbers 20, verses 14. The Hebrew children had left Israel across the the sea. Not the Red Sea. They crossed the sea, and they were headed for the promised land. And they had to pass through the land of Edomia, the land of the Edomites. And Moses said to the king of the Edomites, let us pass through And the king of the Edomites said, you will not pass through. You will not come onto our land, or we will raise an army against you, and we will come out and fight against you. And Moses said, well, wait a minute. He said, let us pass, and if any of our animals need water, the water that they take, we'll pay you for. And the king of the Edomites said, no, you will not pass through our land, and you will not Come on to our territories or we will, we will bring an army out and we will fight against you. The Edomites then showed themselves early, to be, early on to be the enemies of Israel. They refused to allow Moses and the children of Israel to pass. David subdued them in 2 Samuel. They revolted against Jeroboam in 2 Chronicles. And they were always ready to to shed the blood of the children of Israel by force of the sword in the time of calamity, Ezekiel 35, verse 5. Amos speaks of them in a very harsh tone, much as Isaiah does in Amos 1, verses 11 and 12. They ultimately, the end of the Edomites, ultimately was filled up with the measure of their iniquities by open rejoicing when Jerusalem was destroyed and the people led away captive by Nebuchadnezzar Obadiah 1 verses 10 through 14 and Lamentations 4 verse 21 and Ezekiel 35 verses 10 through 13 they are in this chapter they are the people of the curse God doesn't like the Edomites He does not like the Edomites. And he uses the Edomites in this chapter as an example of what he's going to do to the Assyrians. What he's going to do to every country that he raises up through his providence to teach the children of Israel a lesson until they repent and come back to him. He's going to use these countries, these kingdoms, these powers as leverage. Whether by conquest, captivity, by any means necessary. In this instance, though, he's going to use the Edomites. And so we see throughout this chapter the fact that the sword of the Lord is filled with blood, verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Basra is a major city in Edom. It is not the Basra that you think of when you hear Basra in the land of Iraq. That is not the same Basra. This Basra is in the land of Edom. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Consequently, in verses 7, 8, and down through the end of the chapter, for the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion... Verse 7 says the wild oxen will come down among them. He's going to so utterly destroy the city and the Edomites that the wild animals will take over. The wild animals will live there. Streams will be turned to pitch. Do we know what pitch is? I'm sorry? Tar. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That was their fate. That was their fate based on how they treated, based on how they treated everyone. And so you see the rivers, the streams being turned to pitch. The dust is turned to brimstone, another comparative to Sodom and Gomorrah. The land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever, but the. Excuse me, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it and the owl and the raven shall dwell and he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom but shall none be there and all the princes shall be as nothing. Thorns will come up in the palace. Nettles and brambles will be its fortress. It shall be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard for ostriches. The wild beast of the desert also shall meet with the jackals and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also the night creature... And find for himself a place of rest. The arrow snake shall make their nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under their shadow. There shall be hawks gathered together, everyone with its mate. Search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail. He shall cast lot for them and his hand divided among shall be a measuring line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They will dwell in it. Not a very pleasant picture. But having failed to mention that verses that chapters thirty-four and thirty-five are diametrically opposites of one another, lest someone's heart be too down after reading all of this carnage and destruction that's coming, you have merely to turn to chapter thirty-five for the refreshing, cooling drink of water that is for those who are in the remnant and those who will be the ransomed that will return. And so as we move to chapter 35, it only has ten verses. And I want to read these ten verses. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly, And rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hand and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fear-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like the deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway will be there. And a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Is that, not, is that not two chapters that are more polar opposite, the 34th chapter and the 35th? So let's go back up to the top of the 35th chapter and just look at some of these, because a lot of this has overtones of things that we know very well. Lessons that can be applied to the individual. Certainly these, lessons, these things can be applied to the church, and certainly these things can be applied to heaven. So let's look at some of these. The land, the land is going to be renewed, he says. Isaiah says the land is going to be renewed. I'm particularly interested in verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. There are those in the church family here who are weak, some who are strong, but some who are weak, weak in faith, some who are strong in the faith. And so the writer here is telling the church, for us today, the application is strengthen those weak hands. Encourage those who are weak among you. Encourage those who are feeble. Encourage those not feeble with age, feeble in faith. Encourage them. Give them that arm to lean on. And let them know that their trust can be on the arm of the Lord. Strengthen those weak hands. Encourage those people. Make firm the feeble knees. How about say to those who are fear-hearted? I've talked to a lot of Christians who are who are Fearful. What happens if, if I sin? I commit a sin, and, and I, then I drop dead, and I didn't I didn't ask for forgiveness. What's going to happen to me? They're fearful, but those of us who are strong, those of us who are older and can and and not necessarily older in age, but older in the wisdom of the scriptures, we have to be there. We have to be able to say to those who are fear for a fear hearted, be strong. Don't fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. Do you ever wish, well, I wish I could get even with that guy. God will take care of all of this. You just have to stay on that road. Walking in the light. As he's in the light. But Stay strong. He will come. And He will save. People are so full of fear sometimes because they feel like God is so far away. He's not. He's close by. He's here with us this morning. Where two or three are gathered together in My name, there I am. The parched ground. The last few weeks it's been kind of raining. But the ground is dried out. You watch the ground so dry and then the rain comes and everything comes back to life. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 8, the highway. That highway and that road. We're We're traveling down that road. This earth is not my home. Just passing through. I'm on a highway. I'm on a trip i am on a, I have a destination. And that destination is not an earthly destination. That destination is heavenly. Who can travel on that road? The unholy can't. The unclean shall not pass, but it shall be for others. Now, some are talking, some will say, some scholars will say, well, they're talking about, they're, they're talking about coming home from captivity. And that's a very, that's a, that's very valid. That's a very valid point. But I think, again, like the church and like heaven and like the time of Isaiah, there are there are applicable lessons that can be made even in these scriptures to traveling that road, that highway of holiness. And you know, even though you're a fool, even though you don't have all the answers, it says, whosoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. They're fundamentally, irrevocably focused on that destination of heaven. And they may not have all the answers, and they may sometimes act like a fool, but they're not going to go astray, because God is their king, and they're headed for that home. How about verse 9? How about verse 9? No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it, shall not be found there. Does that remind you of heaven? You know, when you walk the streets of gold in heaven, you're not going to have to worry about getting mugged. You're not going to have to worry about your possessions being taken if you leave your house unlocked in heaven. There's no lion there. And the lion here could very well represent the Assyrians. There's not going to be any foe there. There's not going to be any there's not going to be any there's no darkness there. Because the sun is all the light. So there are no ravenous animals. There's no lions that are going to come and get you. There's there's no evil going to befall you when you get to your destination. The ransom of the Lord shall return. Yes, the ransom of the Lord will return. They'll return under Cyrus. They'll return from Babylonian captivity. They'll even return from Assyrian captivity. It's a promise that God has made. The ransom shall return. And the ransom for the church, ransomed with the blood of Christ, will return. They'll reach their destination. And they'll come to Zion with singing. Read the book of Revelation with regard to the amount of singing and praising and what is done by those who are under the throne at the beginning of Revelation, seeking justice, seeking vengeance. How long, O Lord, do we have to wait? And then those at the end of Revelation who are no longer under the throne, but now they're around the throne singing praises to God. Everlasting joy is on their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee flee away. There's no tears. There's no sorrow. All the bad things of life, all of the illnesses that you've had that cripple you up and make you where you can't, walk around and you can't function on a daily basis and that body as you get older is breaking down more and more and you're having to take more and more medicine and you're having to do all these things all that's going to be over there's an end to it no sorrow no sadness everlasting joy everlasting joy and gladness but we have to stay on the road comments or questions We've got about five minutes, and we've gotten to where I wanted to get to today. We've gotten to now, chapter thirty-six. Now we start to rock and roll with some history. Now, and that's that's the part I like the best. So you know, next week we're going to have another slideshow, and you'll get to see Sennacherib, and you'll get to see Esharden, uh, his son, because give you a little hint: he doesn't win. He doesn't win. Talks about in the 37th chapter there where they talk about the destruction of the Assyrian army, that the angel of the Lord comes and kills 185,000 of the men in one night. Who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the angel of the Lord? The pre-incarnate Christ. He will stand to do battle for you. He will be your advocate. He will be your lawyer. If you told Brother Kemp, if you heard Brother Kemp last week, some great points. In that courtroom, on the day of judgment, if you're faithful to Christ, the devil will be the, the prosecuting attorney. Jesus will be your defence attorney and God will be the judge. Even though the Bible says that the Father will turn the judgment over to the Son, God the Father is the judge and, and Jesus will be your attorney. And every railing and every accusation that Satan brings against you, the Lord will say, yeah, he did that, but this blood forgave him. And the judge will say, not guilty. Enter in. That's what we have to look forward to. And we should look forward to it with joy, with gladness, with peace unparalleled, with a peace that passes understanding. All right, we'll see you next week for your history lesson for the, for the week. So read up on 36, 37, and 38 if you want to just to get ahead. Or if you're doing the Lehman learner, never mind. You've already done it. You already know what's happening.